in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, John Flack, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my co-host and good friend, Brian Fry. A little under the weather, though. Oh, it's okay. Good evening, everybody. You're not a real movie-watching champion unless you watch in sickness and in health. That's how hardcore Brian is. Oh, I love sick movies. Sick movies meant no work movies. Yes, that's true. Uh, yeah, nothing makes you feel better than uh, watching a crappy cable movie when you're sick and in bed. I remember... I watched Anaconda when I was sick in bed uh, the last time I was at home. And, uh, you know, as bad as I felt, I remember seeing the movie Anaconda and how bad it was. And it made me feel better about myself. So, um, Oh, come on now. That was a solid John Voight Ice Cube outing. Uh, it's also some early Owen Wilson action. But anyway, uh, oh, to- today also joining us from Danville, Kentucky. First time on the show, Aaron Jenton. How are you doing, sir? Doing good, gentlemen. It's good to be here. Appreciate you having me on, even though I am uh, very difficult to get a hold of, as you've been trying to do for a while. And uh, let's not forget, I think Jennifer Lopez was in that movie, too, wasn't she? Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. Oh, good call. (laughs) Aaron, what do you do for a living and uh, in Danville, Kentucky? So I currently work at a museum. Uh, It's a historic site. Uh, It's actually about uh, 13, 14, 15 miles away from Danville. Um, And uh, my title is called collections manager which sounds like i beat people up for money what i actually do is care for a collection of artifacts that we have so i have about uh seven thousand items in our uh, collection of historic things which is anything from large pieces of furniture to uh, a journal or uh, documents things like that so it's pretty much everything in between and i'm i'm responsible for all those resources uh, including creating access to that and sharing it with our staff and making it as accessible to those that are using it to give tours and do research and all those sorts of things. So uh, it's it's a little bit of everything that comes to uh, working with a collection of artifacts. So Aaron's the guy at the end of Indiana Jones who works in that giant warehouse full of historic artifacts going through one at Correct. a time. So It all belongs in a museum. Never <laughs> Not to pull an office space here, but I'm going to go ahead and need you to say that you beat people up for money. That should be your official cover story. Yeah, yeah. So as a historian and a history buff, what is your favorite period piece movie, Aaron? Like I kind of just will watch what is intriguing to me. And so I probably haven't seen as many uh, history related or period pieces as you might think, um, but the one that I remember, I think it was probably the last one that I saw, which tells you how often I see these kind of movies, was um, Selma, which was the um, one about um, Martin Luther King Jr. and the events surrounding um, Selma, Alabama. The reason I'm going to say that one, 
besides the fact that it was the last one I saw, because I've actually been to Selma, and before I saw that movie, um, I went to the town and walked around and saw some of the sites, and, and they filmed that movie on location there. And so it was just, to me, that's one of the things that makes history powerful, is in some cases you can still see these places today. Um, the power of places, something that's really hard to describe, but it's something that always, for me, kind of took what was just a random assemblage of names and dates and facts and really um, gave some weight to them. And so I, I think that Selma was really powerful just from the standpoint of they were still able to go and walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which I did and which um, the folks that did that back in that day, uh, they, they walked in the same place. And so something like that to me is, is very interesting, very powerful. Um, and so... No, it is a good answer. Uh, power of place is important. I like it. Yeah, you understand that as an architecture person, so you would you get that. Definitely. Yeah, places have stories to them. And uh, mm-hmm. speaking of stories, what is your favorite, I guess, superhero uh, acting performance? You're, <laughs> you're going to laugh at my answer because this was something we also talked about before, but um, I'm going to go way old school, and it's not so much the acting performance as what they were able to do uh, with the resources that were available to them, and that's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie that was done in the late 80s. I, I forget what year it was, late 80s, early 90s. Anyways, the fact that those guys were able to do what they did in those suits still blows my mind, and um, it I, I just think it's impressive for uh, the time period, and especially considering where superhero movies have gone today. Um, it, it still is amazing. I'm going to give it to... Michelangelo, Leonardo, Donatello, and Raphael. Okay. I literally gave Russell crap recently about not liking that movie <laughs> on, on, on how it held up. I was like, you shut your mouth. <laughs> I don't think I've seen it in a couple of years, and I'm sure it probably doesn't hold up as well as I thought it did, uh, even oh, I maybe st- in high school, I- but it still is just striking what they were able to do, I think. Oh, I still love it. No comment. Um. <laughs> Shame. I can't tell you how often I still say pizza dudes got 30 seconds. Like I, that is a quote I say at least on a monthly basis. Whenever we're waking on something, it's like, all right, pizza dudes got 30 seconds. And Aaron, what is a movie that you love that people have forgotten about or may not know? Of? Well, here's the other one that, that I've been banging the drum on for a while. Uh, and that is Pee Wee's big adventure. Uh, that is my favorite movie, and I could watch that pretty regularly and still just laugh, like just just giggle at everything that is funny in that movie. Uh, people probably don't think much about it or they write it off, but that one holds up. The jokes in that, the silliness, like I, to me, maybe maybe it's just me, um, but I I will always laugh at everything in that movie. Good answers, good answers. Early Tim Burton. I'm a huge Tim Burton fan, and I like that. Mm-hmm. Aaron, what is the last movie you saw? Well, the last movie I saw before preparing for this podcast was Captain Marvel. Um, I've really it was so a, good. Yeah, I've been on the Marvel kick really in the past like six months. Um, I watched. I didn't. I didn't really watch any of these movies until just recently, and so um, it was good. I did enjoy it. Uh, still feel. What's like your favorite one so far? I think it was Infinity War. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that I just, yeah. I, having marathon most of these things and not spend a lot of time watching them, um, 
that to me was probably the most intriguing of them all. Um, yeah, and I like Captain Marvel. I just it feels more like an appetizer for Endgame. So um, oh, listen, I totally agree with you. Uh, after watching <laughs> Infinity War, we I think we talked about this on a previous podcast where. I can't watch one of these movies without at least three or four characters being involved because after seeing Infinity War, everything else just seems a little empty. <laughs> it seems a little small, yeah. Like the next one's got to have at least 40 characters or else I'm right. just not even interested. Right, right, right. That's well, a lie. I'll see it anyway. All this talk <laughs> about superheroes. It's time to get into today's movie. Aaron, what's today's movie going to be? Today's movie is going to be uh, the X-Men movie that was filmed in the year 2000. So I guess technically it's the first X-Men movie uh, in the current franchise. So X-Men is wrapping up their Fox uh, run, I should say, with uh, with the Dark Phoenix coming out this summer. And what a better time to look back before it goes over to Disney property and becomes part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This movie released, as Aaron mentioned, in the year 2000. It grosses $157.2 million. That's a pretty strong showing. It comes in eighth in the box office. It places ahead of scary movie at number nine and it places just behind meet the parents at number seven uh if you're wondering what the number one movie was that year it was jim carrey's how the grinch stole christmas imdb <laughs> right yeah <laughs> imdb <laughs> yes that was the number one movie uh imdb <laughs> gives this 7.4 and rotten tomatoes the critics give it 81 percent, and the audience is very closely aligned with that and gives it an 83 percent no awards to show for this, but a lot of love. After watching every single one of the Marvel Disney made movies, is it wrong of me to go back and just criticize this one harshly? Like knowing what the franchise could have been or maybe will be once Disney gets a hold of it. So, so it sounds like you're ready to go into your uh, background <laughs> on this one. So uh, Brian, let me, let me ask you first then. What was your first time seeing this one, and what is it like to come back to it now? Uh, so I saw it in theaters, and I couldn't have been happier. I used to read Wizard Magazine, which, for all of you 90s kids and uh, giant nerds, uh, was a comic book collectible, basically all things nerd magazine. And they used to do these mock, like, if we ever got a movie for these things that we love, this is who we would cast for it. And they actually nailed Patrick Stewart for Professor X, which I absolutely love. And being a Brian Singer fan, because Usual Suspects is probably on my short list for best movie ever, um, I I was super stoked. So not only did Brian Singer get the, the directorial nod for this, but they were making a movie for my favorite comic book franchise. So it was all win for me. I watched the movie. I liked it. Um, I wouldn't say that I loved it, but they were making it. Like, that's that's all I cared about. It was one of those, like, finally, I get to see this now. So, yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm all thumbs up for it. But, man, I really can't wait until Disney gets a hold of this. Okay, and so coming back to it now, I sense that you have, uh, it's it's like the room that's not as big as it was when you were in it as a kid. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, you know, a lot of movies can be said uh, about that, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for you. Mm. I mean, you're wrong, but whatever. I can't fit in the building <laughs> uh, on that one. <laughs> uh, it's just, I don't know. It's one of those things that, especially once you get to, to Last Stand, 
um, it gets a little bit of Peter Griffin knee bruise. Ah. <laughs> okay. And so, Aaron, what about you? Uh, when did you first see this movie? And what were your expectations coming back in? And did you enjoy it this time around? I saw it in a theater. Uh, I do remember seeing it in a theater. And I remember really enjoying it at the time. And here, I, I remember watching it probably on and off through high school. And then as my interest kind of shifted as I got through college, I just kind of went away from it. And so it has been a really long time since I'd seen this movie. I'm not sure what I expected going in, but I know that I expected probably not to feel the same way. I didn't have like super high expectations for it. Uh, and I watched it twice before tonight. So the first time I watched it, I was like, oh man, this isn't as good as I remember it. The second time I watched it, I was like, okay, I, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it more now. Maybe not as much as I did when I first saw it in high school, but I... It, I think I'm with you, Brian. Like, I'm just like, it, w- it was good. Um, and I think for the time that it was made, like, yes, it was ex- it was actually pretty excellent. But I'm with you. I think we've all been spoiled by the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I'll throw into that um, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight or Batman mm-hmm. movies. Um, I think those two things together just kind of took whatever Brian Singer did with these X-Men movies and said, yeah, that was good. But you've got a long way to go, son. Totally agree with that. And I think that's just changed our our overall sort of like the world that we live in to some degree. And so that I think looking back through that lens causes me to be like, yeah, I can see how this was really good. And and high school Aaron really did, really did enjoy it, um, but felt a little differently about it now. Still didn't. I I didn't hate it by any means, but it was not, you know, exceptional. Um, That's when I met this high school Aaron. I, I, Aaron, <laughs> Brian, and I all met each other in high school and probably shared the same homeroom if I can remember correctly. So for me, the X-Men animated series was my, uh, I guess you could say the beginning of my love of X-Men. That debuted in 1992. I definitely had all the action figures coming out of that. Uh, I, uh, they were poorly constructed and they all seemed to fall apart. Uh, it was very unfortunate. Colossus's arms fell off. Uh, Storm's <laughs> head fell off. I mean, I think Wolverine was the only one that actually still worked later. But Very appropriate. Do you think that makes more sense given his character? Yes, absolutely. That, uh, that's a good point. It does. I guess, I guess it's the most durable and heals up. Uh, um, and so anyway, though, I, I got to this movie and I was really pumped. And I probably over... over blew this in my head before going in and i actually even in 2000 in uh 10th grade me went in and saw this and i came out honestly a little bit disappointed at the time and i gave it another shot i watched it with some friends again in in, uh college uh and it has been on tv along the way as well and it's got some things I really like about this movie and it's, it's a love hate relationship I have with this movie because there's parts of this that I really like and there's parts of it that really frustrate me. Coming back to it now was kind of an interesting thing of like, have I built this up in my head? Like that this movie's bad. And uh, in the end it's not bad. And I, I think maybe it was starting to sour more and more with time. Uh, but I do know that it has been eclipsed by other superhero movie efforts, much like you guys had mm-hmm. said. And uh, like I said, uh, I have very mixed feelings about this one. And we're about to get into that. But in order to talk about X-Men, we got to spoil it. And if you don't like spoilers, and most people don't, you're going to want to turn this movie, or sorry, turn this uh, podcast off 
Uh, go watch X-Men from the year 2000. We'll be back after these messages. Oh no! Dr. Portem is looking to take over the whole city with his plan to make people listen to a continuous loop of his dissertation on why Lent forms in the naval area and the typologies of Lent that form there. But wait! Look overhead! Soaring through the air on his way to save us all from Dr. Boredom! It is the Retro Movie Round Table Man! He came to Earth when his space shuttle from Planet Awesome was abruptly rerouted by a meteor! Now he fights to save us all! Good things from the dullness and lameness of the mundane life! With his powers to suggest great films, offer interesting movie insights, and a general love of movies, the Retro Movie Roundtable Man always saves the day. To summon the Retro Movie Roundtable Man, simply go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever your podcasts come from. Then subscribe to the show. Make sure to give the Retro Movie Roundtable a five-star rating and review, and make his powers even stronger. Like the show on Facebook? Email the team at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Hooray! Retro Movie Roundtable Man has saved us all and restored interest and love for movies to the whole city. Thanks, Retro Movie Roundtable Man! Aaron, why don't you refresh people who haven't seen X-Men in some time? Maybe to set the scene a little bit, the movie is set in sort of a present-day scenario in which uh, the country, our country, is uh, divided over the issue of mutants. And these are people that are born with a biological mutation that gives them some kind of special powers. We see the country's divided really over the fear of what these people could potentially do uh, as being dangerous. And it's come to the point in this movie where there's a debate over a Mutant Registration Act uh, in the U.S. Senate. But there's an opposition to that, and the opposition to this uh, Registration Act sees this as an infringement on the civil rights of the mutants. And so uh, there is this very stark division uh, within society over these things, but there's also a division within the mutant world because amongst the mutants, there is this uh, fundamental question of how you respond to people that want to restrict your rights. So we have this division that's on full display in this movie as well, and it's really headed up by two main figures. Uh, the first is Professor Charles Xavier, who is uh, leading a school for what he calls gifted children, and that really means mutants. Uh, and that school provides the public-facing front for the X-Men, which is uh, essentially a group of good guys, uh, of good mutants, uh, who are emphasizing tolerance and peaceful interaction with non-mutants and with those who are opposed to them. And then on the other side is a guy named Eric Lyncher, who we later learn is uh, also known as Magneto. His philosophy is complete opposite of Professor Xavier's, and that is one of violence and resistance. And so that's kind of the backdrop that's set up in this movie. The story really focuses uh, on two mutants uh, named Rogue and Wolverine. We're introduced to Rogue pretty early in the movie. What we learn about her is that physical contact with her. So when a person comes in contact with her skin, it causes her to uh, steal uh, your energy, still your life force, and that can really be physically devastating, as she learns uh, when she when she kisses this boy. The implication is that when she realizes something's wrong, she, she goes on the run. She ends up in Canada, and in Canada she meets uh, a guy who goes by the name of Wolverine. His real name is Logan. He has the ability to rapidly heal from any injury that he has. That unique ability, his mutation led to a secret government experiment in which metal called adamantium was grafted to a skeleton and he was turned into a secret super weapon which eventually led to him also being given these claws these blades that come out of his hands and he was a walking weapon he's kind of just a vagabond sort of living on his own living out of his truck up in canada 
And these two are both attacked by Magneto's people. Um, but in that confrontation, they're both saved by Professor X's people and taken back to uh, the School for Gifted Youngsters. That's where we're introduced to the rest of the X-Men, uh, very specifically Jean Grey, Cyclops, and Storm, uh, along with Professor X. The story leads us to believe that Magneto is after Wolverine for some big plot. It's not entirely clear what he's up to, and so the X-Men and Professor X try to figure out what's going on. We learn, as the audience, that Magneto's actually developed a device that can trigger mutation in non-mutants, and he's kidnapped Senator Robert Kelly, who is a leading proponent of mutant registration, and tests it out on him, turning in him into a mutant, but there are really terrible side effects with that that ultimately kill him. And what we learn is that Magneto plans to use this on a much larger stage and that he ultimately needs Rogue to accomplish this, not Wolverine, because of her ability to absorb a mutant's powers. And so he can pass his powers to Rogue and therefore she can be the one to trigger this machine to mutate a number of people on a large level and that would ultimately take her life. So the movie moves towards ultimately a, a fight between the X-Men and Magneto. They are able to stop him from unleashing his mutation device on what appears to be all of New York City. They're able to save everybody. There's some important character development where we see Wolverine making a trans transition from a self-centered jerk to sacrificing himself to save everybody, especially Rogue. And they all live happily ever after. But not quite, because the fear of mutants is still out there despite the fact that Senator, uh, Senator Kelly is dead. And, of course, they leave plenty of loose ends there at the end set up for a sequel. The movie really kind of sets the stage. It really is very much sort of a beginning movie in a lot of ways. Um, that sort of introduces us to this very unique world in which mutants are a reality and people are scared of them and don't know quite what to do with that. And uh, we're brought down to the level of the mutants where they're figuring out how to navigate their way through this world that they live in as well. That's right. Uh, this is a movie of politics as well as superpowers. Uh, that's one of the mm -hmm. trademarks of the X-Men series for sure. Brian, what do we think about this cast? This is just, this is one of those casts that was really an all-star cast. I, it still would be today, but it was a really all-star mm -hmm. cast at the time. So we'll start with Hugh Jackman because this movie really catapulted him into the uh, the limelight. He was he was a good actor before and, and everything, but I think Wolverine really was that defining character for him. Uh, we also have Patrick Stewart as Professor Charles Xavier. Ian McKellen, who I'm a huge fan of, as Eric Lyncher and Magneto. Uh, Famke Jensen. This is actually the second time she's come up in two weeks. I just want to point that out as Jean Grey. Uh, James Marsden as Scott, quote unquote, uh, Cyclops. Uh, Halle Berry as Aurora Monroe or Storm. Anna Paquin as Rogue. Uh, Tyler Maine as Sabretooth. Ray Park, who is actually in a ton of stuff after this. We'll probably bring that up later as Toad. Rebecca Romaine as Mystique, uh, Bruce Davidson, excuse me, Davison as Senator Kelly, Brett Morris as Young Magneto, who I gotta say, that's one of the most understated parts of this movie is is the the intro. Uh huh. Loaded cast. It was a big cast. Uh, I'm surprised this movie is not more expensive than it is. Its budget wasn't as big as you would think, given the uh, impressive nature of the cast. We talked about this movie revolving largely around Wolverine. What do you guys think about that, Brian? Wolverine is probably the most visible member 
of the Marvel Cinema- Cinematic Universe. Um, he is frequently on you know the top five list of favorite superheroes. He is a very likable character, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I like him the same way I like Raphael in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, since we keep bringing that up. Um, he's just one of those very... Uh, like forefront characters he's got he's got a big personality he's a smart ass you know and he's he's a tank so he's just one of those guys that you can do a lot with and really make them him a center of something yeah and it's kind of interesting i never liked wolverine in the cartoon uh he's tends to be a lone wolf he's not a team player he's moody he goes off on his own angry a lot and uh kind of a lone wolf and uh you know, I, I didn't care for him much. This movie goes a long way to make this character far, far more likable. I don't know if you agree with that, Aaron. Uh, no, I think you're right. I was I was thinking, uh, you know, it's been so long since I've seen the cartoon, and I'm like you, that's kind of where my... I never read the comic book, so that's where my interest in X-Men kind of came out. But you're right, he was much more of a curmudgeon uh, and kind of just a grumpy guy overall uh even though he was my favorite and i i think he's i'm with you brian like i think he's the most compelling probably of the x-men but they softened the edges a little bit you could tell that they wanted to make him this gruff kind of i'm curmudgeon's the word i used he he has elements of that in this movie but they certainly did soften him to some degree from the minute we meet him just about like he is interested in the welfare of rogue and so that's not something that he you're not surprised at the end when they are friends because they're kind of already setting you up for that early on so yeah i'm with you they did make him a lot more likable do you like hugh jackman playing the part aaron oh no question this was kind of his first like major hollywood role and i mean it's probably when he's dead and gone this is probably going to be the role that he's remembered most for it's just it is perfect from physically to, I mean, everything else he was able to do with it. He just, he, he, he nailed it. I think I could be wrong, but is it, I think it's seven movies that he plays this, this role in it's the uh, three for the trilogy of the X trilogy, uh, three for his own movies, the Wolverine movies. And then he's also in, I believe, uh, additional one of the, uh, new ones with, uh, you know, uh, days of future past. Oh, and, and Age of Apocalypse. So that's that's eight by my count so far. Yeah, they wouldn't be able to replace him with anybody else, I don't think. It just wouldn't you just have to retire the character and when he does eventually make his appearance in the expanded Marvel universe now, like they're gonna have to give it some time to settle, I think, probably. Uh, he was he was very good. And uh, Hugh Jackman said he prepared for the role by taking ice cold showers uh, in the morning before filming. He uh, did this uh, initially uh, so when he first did the role, uh, he had no hot water. And so not to wake his wife, he was just sitting there like, you know, grinning, like gritting and bearing like at uh, 5 a.m. And uh, just, you know, a cold shower always starts your day off horribly. But uh, he <laughs> felt like that uh, shocked, awake nature of having to hold it in and always constantly be wanting to go off. That's that's what he did to put himself in the frame of mind to be Wolverine. So. Uh, if you want to be Wolverine, Brian, take a cold shower. <laughs> I do that every now and then in the summer anyway. It gets pretty hot and dry out here. Just waiting for those claws to pop out. <laughs> a very interesting part of how uh, Hugh Jackman got this role. I don't know if you've uh, have either of you guys uh, heard about this one. Uh, there's a lot of alternate castings out there. Other people that were considered were Mel Gibson, 
Aaron Eckhart, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Viggo Mortensen, Edward Norton, Bob Hoskins, Keanu Reeves, and Gary Sinise, who actually think Gary Sinise would do a pretty good job of this. Duggery Scott actually got cast for the part, but conflicts with Mission Impossible 2 arose, which also comes out in the year 2000, and he was injured on a motorcycle accident, and then they actually kind of came back, and they asked Russell Crowe, uh, who was somebody who they really wanted initially before all those other guys. Uh, Crow turned it down, and he said that uh, he didn't want to do a comic book movie. Odd, because he later goes on to become Superman's dad, but uh, anyway, he said he didn't want to do this, and furthermore, when they came back to him the second time, he then suggested his uh, fellow Australian and friend Hugh Jackman for the role. Pretty fun uh, reference there. Brian, did uh, Russell Crowe make a good choice? I, I like Russell Crowe a lot, but I'm not for that. Yeah, li- literally a quick no on this because one, I just I look at what Hugh Jackman did for that role, and I I outside of the actual first Wolverine movie, which was just bad because it was a bad movie. Like he, I I wouldn't I have a hard time picturing anybody else for the role of Wolverine, and if I had to, I would say you know if they were gonna do it as like a younger version. Going forward, um, I think I'd like Scott Eastwood for the part. Okay, interesting. Uh, you know, it's uh, something interesting is uh, you know the character in the comic books is like not a six foot tall guy. Like uh, Wolverine's like a bowling ball. He's a short guy. He's a very hairy guy. He's got lots of uh, like his sideburns are super hairy and his arms are super hairy. It's kind of interesting. This movie made efforts to. Uh, make him more appealing with the ladies he's a uh you know stands in probably at six foot two or something like that and he's absolutely ripped i was actually sitting there thinking like gary sinise fits the description of what i think of the comic book character being a little more but uh i think russell crowe made a good choice by passing it on saying like you should get this guy to do it yeah we got some uh, heavyweight british actors what do we think about sir ian mckellen and patrick stewart aaron i'd say perfectly cast again brian like you were saying patrick stewart is just kind of the quintessential like bald smart guy like you couldn't put anybody else in that role i think with you know he just is typecast for that um at least based on you know all the drawings of him that i'd ever seen ian mckellen i just the guy's just cool this is probably just too simplistic but there's something about his voice that you know i'm seeing gandalf when i hear him talk obviously but it just gives the weight to the way he speaks and i think that in this movie um, at least the character of Magneto, you know, there's 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 a lot of like weight and seriousness behind uh, the cause of Magneto and how he comes to these decisions. And that movie, it comes out a little bit in the movie based on his family history. Like he's experienced this sort of alienation multiple times throughout his life. But it just, uh, I don't know, there's something about the way Ian McKellen just kind of presents himself and carries himself and I think his voice especially like it just is powerful and it's interesting that you mentioned Lord of the Rings because this almost didn't happen uh he almost had to turn down Lord of the Rings because of his commitments to do X-Men but after talking with Brian Singer about it they rearranged the movie shooting schedule to coordinate better and Sir Ian McKellen was able to be both Magneto and Gandalf. And thank goodness, because uh, he's good at both yes. of those things. Yeah. I'd also like to tip my hat just a little bit for the the casting of Young Them for X-Men First Class. Uh, McAvoy and Fassbringer are just great choices. I especially love uh, Days of the Future Past, where there's literally crossover between the two. And gosh, that's just... 
awesome. It's just awesomely exciting, and especially when they add little lines and quips in there. Like, at least you still have your hair. <laughs> yeah, and the, the and by the way, I really enjoyed those movies in many ways. I thought that uh, they, that second go round series has been better. Agreed. I'm with you. I, I think that that's a lot of a lot of fun. How they cast those two. I would debate and say that these are the two most important roles. And they did it so well both times. I'm a little disappointed. They again, maybe my, uh, maybe the fact that Wolverine's not my favorite X Men comes through on this. But I wish this story revolved a little more around Magneto and Professor X. Just from a storytelling standpoint, I wish I wish that they were more the central focus. I think they took that more into account in the second go around. Like it really is central to. You were right, and that's probably why I like those movies better. It, it's probably a big part of that. You're right. I actually haven't seen those. So I saw the these first three, and then I haven't seen any of the other ones. So um, Oh, I highly recommend them. Yeah, well, I, I know I'm going to have to. I'm inspired to see them now. I think, so here's the thing. I think if you were going to, looking again, looking back through the lens of like what Christopher Nolan did with his movies, I think if you in, added maybe another half hour to 45 minutes into this movie and to make it a little bit more dramatic, then that would be the way to go. Like tap the skill of those two guys and explore that relationship a little bit more. That would have been awesome because I would say, I mean, they only have a couple of scenes really together and it's mostly like dialogue, but I mean, couldn't you just sit and listen to them talk to each other forever? Definitely. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, No flashbacks either. Some other fun alternative castings, Kirsten Dunst, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Christina Ricci, Rachel Lee Cook, and Catherine Isabel were all considered for the role of Rogue, as well as Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman turned down the role. Ultimately, it ended up going as to Anna Paquin. Some other interesting alternative castings, Janet Jackson and Angela Bassett were considered for the role of Storm, as well as Jada Pickett-Smith. Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Ethan Hawke were all considered for Cyclops. Uh, Jim Caviezel was offered and turned down the role. And uh, for the role of Jean Grey, Maria Bello and Lucy Lawless were also considered for the role of Jean Grey. Shorter list of candidates there. Wow. I didn't know about the Lucy Lawless thing. How do you feel about that? I'm not for it. I mean, I like Lucy Lawless fine, but honestly, my biggest complaint about Jean Grey in this is she looks, and I, I really don't mean this in a mean way but she looks older than everybody else in the movie except (laughs) patrick stewart and ian mckellen so it's it's harder to put her in the student category i mean they start off with her basically addressing congress so you know marsden looks young uh uh, halle berry looks young like i i bought it from basically everybody but her and even when they go on to future movies with like Colossus and Nightcrawler and and these other folks, it's just it's harder. She's only four years older than uh, Hugh Jackman, though. Right, but Hugh Jackman's supposed to be you know three hundred and twenty in this movie. Like that's fine. She's also only two years older than sorry. She's also only two years older than Halle Berry. Yeah, like I said, it's just it it visually looks a bit off. Okay. That's fair. I mean, I feel like uh, there's I, I, there's not team synergy on the youth appear, appearance. I was okay with Jean being the age that she was, perhaps because I always just like Pompka Jansen being in movies. But um, the... oh, and look, I mean, absolutely no offense by any of this. I love her as an actor. I have no real problem with her being Jean Grey. I just felt that visually it didn't match up across the three X Men that aren't Hugh Jackman. 
Cyclops, Storm, and Jean are full-grown adults in this version of it, and they're not students. They're part of the administration. I get that, but they don't look it. Like they, they constantly say, oh, they were some of my earliest students. So you're still looking at it as a student, a, a, a pupil teacher perspective. And Jean Grey seems more the part of, of teacher than the other two. Okay. Aaron, any, any age play uh, concerns? I, I hadn't really thought about that at all. It's interesting that you say that. So my, that was my question was how old are they really supposed to be? You said Jean Grey is testifying before Congress and she's a, isn't she a doctor? She's referred to as Dr. Yep. Jean Grey. So she's yep. got to be older if she's gone through any kind of, I don't know, I guess doctor is in medical training, but. but like, I, I'm not I, seeing what they're actual. You could tell me that in the movie, they're all the same age. And I'm just saying visually, she yeah. seems more and maybe older is the wrong way to put it. Maybe she's just more mature. I wanted to say she's just more stately. Like she pulls more of the Professor X than the others. The others seem more. Well, this gets to one of my big omissions in the movie. Uh, certainly uh, one of my favorite X-Men who's not in this movie, who should be doing the Senator uh, should be doing the Senator scene would be beast. I think that might help balance things out a little bit for you. Maybe had beast been in here. I think they were trying very hard to steer clear of anything requiring heavy makeup and or CGI. Like, I think they had that a little bit more figured out when First Class came out, and they really wanted to stay true to who was actually in the First Class of X-Men. Mm. But um, You could be right about that. But that's unfortunate, though, because I really like Beast. There were some fails on that, too. So. Well, I, I did, I'd noticed when I was looking around online, they said that they cut um, like Nightcrawler, Beast, the Danger Room, and a few other things because of budget. Like the budget was too much, or they were worried about it being too high, and so those guys literally just got cut out because they knew it was going to cost too much. I guess maybe what what I would suggest here, and maybe this would be better for change one thing, but I'll go ahead and say it now. I think this movie could have used less star power and more X Men. I like that. Like they could have brought in a bunch of extra people. Like let's say you don't go with Marsden, you don't go with Halle Berry. Um, I think you could have kept Anna Paquin just because she hadn't done True Blood yet, so she wasn't huge. Uh, keep Stewart, keep McKellen. Jackman wasn't that big yet, so you could keep the core of what makes it. Recast Jensen, Marsden, and Barry for other people. Uh, basically, if you cut their salaries in half and then doubled the X Men. So, like, toss in Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Gambit. Well, uh, this this like I said, this movie uh, does not have my top three favorite X-Men in it, and that would be Nightcrawler, Gambit, and uh, I'm not asking for Bishop to be in here, but he's, for dramatic emphasis, that, that rounds out my, my favorite three. And you do get that later, too. You do. Doesn't it surprise you how small the cast still seems, even though it really is like, a, you know, they've got all these stars, and it is... I, maybe again, it's looking at it through the lens of Infinity War or something like that. Like, wow, there's not that many people in this movie overall. Oh, you're like, they you're, really got by with a small cast. You are totally right about that. I mean, especially nowadays, this would be looked on as uh, a miss, probably. I bet it would not get the the score credit it does if if this were to come out next to any of these Disney movies. Brian, you mentioned earlier you were excited because Brian Sanger was known for, for being the director of Usual Suspects, and you were excited to see that his name was attached to X-Men. 
What do you think about Brian Singer as a director, not as a person in his personal life? Uh, he's uh, been accused of some bad stuff, but uh, just as a director, what do you think of Brian Singer? He's very hit and miss. Uh, he's his early work is really what drew me to him. And I would never say I dislike the guy because he brought X-Men to the screen and I, I needed it. And that really kicked off all the superhero movies. So everything we have now is based on the success of X-Men first class or I'm sorry of, of the first X-Men movie. So, you know, I, I love it. But when he did like apt pupil, uh, and usual suspects. I mean, those were, those were just really like, wow movies. I, yeah, I just, I can't say enough good things about it. And because of the success of those two, then comes X-Men. Aaron, what are your takes on the direction of X-Men? I, I thought that there were some cool little, um, maybe flares in it. And this may address your question, but like a couple of times there were some shots that I thought were just really compelling. And sometimes it's centered around um, like sort of showing off some of the, the, the powers that they had. Brian, you referred to the, the, the opening scene in the concentration camp. And I think that, I think that's full of like great shots, including like oh, yeah. barbed, where the barbed wire, like is turning down and pointing at the guards as like the kid is just getting more and more, uh, inconsolable and screaming. Uh, and then when they sort of show the shot of the gate just wrecked, like, I don't know the way, the way that entire scene was filmed, I thought was, was pretty cool. Uh, and then to me kind of, I think the one, like my favorite sort of shot is, uh, in the bar when Wolverine first shows his claws. And so he's got one hand out on the, the neck of the guy that tried to stab him. And the other one, after he had cut the shotgun open, so he's standing there with one hand on the guy's neck and the other pointed at the guy with the the gun. Um, like, that just, you could freeze that shot forever. And it's just, to me, that's that's pretty, I don't know if iconic is the right word, but uh, I, he hit that pretty well, I think. Yeah. It's interesting at the time, I remember thinking the idea of putting x-men in movie format to me struck me as odd whatever where i have always wanted it to be was a live action tv series and where i really really started to want that is when netflix started producing marvel content like daredevil uh if if we could have gotten an x-men show like that that really is where this belongs because it's it's almost a fool's errand to try and go out and tell all these stories because what happens is uh, Storm and Cyclops and Jean are all absolutely underutilized. They're they're just appendages almost. And like we mentioned earlier, Professor yeah. X and uh, you know Magneto are really really take a back seat. And I'm I, I'm already somewhat resentful of you know Wolverine getting too much credit and attention <laughs> and the X-Men. And so the, perhaps my displeasure with it the first time came from the fact that they said front and center this is Wolverine and Rogue and. I don't know that that works as well because I read that they were excited to bring Brian Singer in as a director because Unusual Suspects, he handled an ensemble cast really well. And it's true. When you watch that movie, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there's all these different characters and you get a little feel for each one of them. And it's not just about one of them. It all comes together as a group. And in the end, one or two of them might have a little more of a priority with what happens in the story. But through a vast majority of the movie... It's really how a group works together, and he gets you into it really quickly. He gives you a little flavor of who they are, enough to make sure that you understand the dynamic of what they bring to that group. And I wish 
I wish that that same skill of ensemble directing had carried over to X-Men um, because I don't think it does. I'm with you maybe a little bit on that. And that's, like I said, when I watched this the first time last week, like the timing seemed off. It didn't seem, it had a strange rhythm to me. Uh, and maybe that's because he was trying to, trying to do so much. Um, I, Storm is just a, is just a refuse character in this movie. The character herself is, is awesome, but she, she really doesn't do anything in the movie other than have one really bad line at the end. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and that's it. Like I couldn't, it was hard for me to put words on how the, the rhythm seemed strange. And the second time through it felt better, but maybe Russ, that's what you're saying is like, uh, maybe he just wasn't quite sure how to do this, especially with the budget that he had in the time. Cause I think I also read that they had like, they had their timeline cut short six months because the studio wanted it early or something, so maybe that contributed to it too. I don't know. It's possible. Could be. I just think X Men would do better if you laid it out and said we're going to do seven of these movies from the beginning, and if you know you're going to do seven of these movies, it's going to turn out a lot better. And I thought even at the time, you have to do this episodic nature of it if you're going to do this right. And they did go on to make many movies, but I don't think they knew that at the time. I think they felt the pressure of making one really good movie to make sure that they could do everything else after that. And that's why it had to be Magneto right away. It had to do all this stuff. And they couldn't set up uh, a more, uh, I guess, sustaining plot like a Star Wars universe. But when you think about it, and in fairness, even at the time I wanted this, Movies like uh, this Harry Potter does not start until the next year. Uh, the Lord of the Rings series also does not begin until 2001. Uh, the MCU does not kick off with until with Iron Man in 2008. Uh, really, Star Wars or The Matrix more so are are there. There are a lot fewer examples, I should say, about a series of movies that builds a universe. And this movie kind of suffers. It kind of what you guys were talking about. These other movies kind of eclipse it. I believe a large part of that has to do with because they laid out an ambitious mission and overall storyline before they even began. So they didn't have a story to tell over the course of seven movies. They made one, then they made another, then they made another. And yes, that's how comic books are written, but I don't feel like these movies as a series capture that. Well, there's an overlying arc to comic books too. There's there's always an end game, if I can use that for this. <laughs> um with with comic books so you always have what the bigger picture is and you're completely right in your point that this being the progenitor of a lot or basically of superhero movies they didn't know what they were going to get out of this and because it was widely considered to be a, a you know fantastic success they didn't know the monster it was creating because you now get to go back and look at it and be like well it was that you know that's just kind of us i i will never really crap on this movie because look at what it gave us i mean did it though because i mean superman came out in the 70s batman was there in the 80s you had other movies along the way too uh in the, in the 90s there's a little bit of a lull and it's true this does come out before spider-man and once spider-man comes out like everything's like it's it's the, it's the next explosion of superhero movies and you're right but this this kicked off modern day superhero movie fever that is the juggernaut that it is today, if I can use that uh, key in there too. You're but yeah, yes, this absolutely kicked off everything that we know and love about comic book movies now. And, um, you know, it was, it was a test. 
they were dipping their toe into the water and they found it very nice. That's an interesting take. I, uh, I, I guess I give more credit to some stuff that had gone before it, but I guess uh, you feel like uh, the 2000s era, um, the name, the game of the superhero movie changed in your mind. We should also include Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in this because that's a comic book movie and awesome. Oh, man. Uh, I, 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 still pleading the fifth. <laughs> well, I guess my point with, with like the early Batman movies and even the intermittent Batman movies, and I say that with dread and sorrow in my voice, and Superman and all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, sure, they made comic book movies, but they weren't. They were all standalone bastions of, of popularity. Um, they weren't anything close to what they are now. There was little to no continuity to them. Uh, even in the, the Michael Keaton Batman movies, there wasn't continuity to it. This was this kicked off, and I call it modern comic book movies, because this was the beginning of a bigger picture. And it took comic book fans and non-comic book fans seeing something like this and seeing it as an action movie, not just a comic book movie to really get the fever stirred that later would become what it is now, you know, the MCU as a whole. So, and this one, because it, it kicked it off, it is a hybrid of the comic book movies you had before and the comic book movies we enjoy today because they didn't know what the big picture was going to be. They didn't know this was going to be a success. So they were writing one at a time and having them very insular. Fair words in defense. That's uh, that's all well said. Uh, what do you feel about the uh, atmosphere, like the locations of this? We're supposedly in New York, uh, in Westchester. It turns out we're actually in Ontario almost exclusively, and we're in Canada. But uh, Aaron, what do you feel about the places they chose to shoot? It's funny because we were talking about power of place. The the places are not really defining. I think of what really uh, what this movie does. It I, I mean everything's very very micro. I think in the way it was filmed, like it's not other than sort of being up in Canada, and so you do get a little bit of sort of uh, appropriate sort of setting there. What about the the academy? I mean, this is like the center of the X-Men. Uh, you know, this is like the base of the X-Men. What did you think about Charles's school for the gifted? Yeah, I think it was fine. I think it kind of uh, captured, I guess, what that's supposed to be. I would be interested to know how many film minutes, so how much of the actual movies is a shot outside. Because I just thought about it and i was like okay so there's wolverine in canada when road road pulls up to a bar you've got wolverine on a snowy road you've got a handful of shots uh of people sitting on benches outside xavier's school train station like even when they're in the train station no but that they're in a train station they're in a train there's no uh, all right when they're leaving the train station and cops have guns pointed at them i mean they're very small shots like and, all those, no and all those could broad have been done. In, most of those could have been done in sound stages too. So right. I, so maybe, yeah, I think Aaron's Brian, absolutely I think right. What I'm saying is that it's yeah. all very sort of micro. It's not sort of big pan out. And it, it gets. I'm wondering. Yeah, I'm. I'm even wondering what they used to shoot coming up to the Statue of Liberty because that's really the biggest scene in terms of mileage that you can see on film. 
Uh, well, a, a little bit about where they they did not shoot the uh, um, classes room in the mansion and all that. That was on a, a location. There's something called the Parkwood Estate in Ontario. And uh, it was actually the residence of Samuel McLaughlin, the former founder of General Motors in Canada. And so uh, it's uh, it's decadent and uh, extravagant and is a 1916 building. And uh, if you're recognizing it at all, I was going to say this is also Billy Madison's uh, uh, <laughs> house. And it's also uh, Lex Luthor's mansion in Smallville. And if you watch Arrow series uh, from DC and uh, from the CW uh, currently on TV, this is the Oliver Queen mansion as well. So many superheroes, as well as Billy Madison, have resided in this same Parkwood estate. I, I will say that the one thing I didn't like about locations was just senseless acts of violence in a museum at Ellis Island. <laughs> I'm not in approval of that. <laughs> no fighting in the museum, he says. Correct. Well, uh, so that's the exterior of it. The actual interior of it, they shot at a different place outside of Toronto, and that's called Castle Loma, and that's a 1914 building. But that's also a real place. I had certain visions of the richness of Charles Xavier's school, and that is one of the moments of this movie that I did deliver what I wanted. So, um, cool. obviously, the uh, the rumor Charles Xavier puts his uh, helmet on and uh, Cerebro, that is, uh, mm. that is not a real... Part of the house what <laughs> i'm imagining billy madison down in that <laughs> what's this helmet doing down here i'm gonna get that penguin send him back to the zoo <laughs> what do we think about the look of these characters because i mean the change from animated comic to uh, actual real life translation can be a little bit tricky sometimes they even made a fun little mention of this. Like, would you prefer to wear yellow and blue spandex? Yeah, I like that joke. Yeah. That's a good uh -huh. joke. So what do you think about this? Do you like their black leather uniforms? And um, I, I like it. And this is one of the things I was thinking about when Brian was talking about sort of kicking off what we know of as, as superhero movies today um, or comic book movies. I mean, I... I think that was sort of a definitive a decision that they had to make. How are we going to do this? And the way they went, I think it probably did anger some hardcore comic book fans, but it was kind of the right thing to do. It gave it a sense of grounding it more in real life. And I think that was part of the, back to the bigger picture here, it, it's a way to make it serious but not campy. Um, and I think that maybe is what sets what we know of these movies now apart from some of their predecessors. Like even... Even the um, Tim Burton Batman movies, they still had campy elements to them. You bite your tongue, sir. I, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I like them. Like, that first Batman movie is excellent. Um, but there was still... It still... It, it had elements that you would not find in some of these today. And I think even in X-Men. And I think they found that right balance. And I think that is uh, encapsulated by the the costumes that they wore. And I love how they could take it seriously. Like, just poke fun at themselves. Poke fun at the fact that these people have stupid names sometimes. Like, uh, what do they call you? Wheels? Like, mm -hmm. they're not too serious about it. They were willing to, to make jokes about it and acknowledge it. But realize, like, hey, we're trying to make movies that are a bit more relatable. And I think... Based on what I was reading, there was there was one of the reasons that Singer was interested in this movie and what attracted some to the storyline is because of its parallels historically to things like the Civil Rights Movement and the clash between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and uh, sort of very real personal 
uh, stories here of people that are that are outcast, people that are different. Um, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's easier to take those stories real when you're not running around in blue and yellow spandex. You're right about that. And Singer didn't want to do it. You're right. And uh, it wasn't until he later found out more about what the X-Men were about, as you mentioned there, perhaps even connecting to it. I think he is a gay man himself. Uh, I think he mentioned and that the nature of fighting for rights and equality, I, I, you had mentioned it's a, it's a story that's told over and over again throughout history. And so he got into it and started, he watched all of the cartoon. He, he went back and read the comic books extensively, but he did do something odd. He asked the cast not to read any of the comics and uh, gave them scripts instead and just told them to stick to that. But uh, luckily, none of them listened. Hmm. Patrick Stewart in particular said he really enjoyed, he wasn't familiar with his character, but he went back and uh, really enjoyed reading about the character. And he said it's some of the most fun research he's ever had to do for a uh, role. Um, Interesting. Yeah. But Brian, what about you? Who do, who, who, who do you think looks the best in this movie as far as what uh, translation from superhero to screen goes? And maybe who disappointed you the most? Patrick Stewart, hands down. He is quintessential Professor X. Uh, I really mm-hmm. can't say that enough. Really, Sabretooth sucked. Yeah. Pretty yeah. hard. Um, I didn't like Liv Schreiber's Sabretooth either. Oh. So, yeah, I I, I have a rough one here. Um, I there, ha- there hasn't really been a satisfactory Sabretooth yet. Oh, I like Shriver's Sabretooth. Uh, I, I, this, one, this one I do agree with you, though, is undercooked and under underconsidered. I'll say Shriver's better than this one, but it's still not, not where I want it. And I'd even be willing to give him another crack at it. It's just that that movie was terrible. Okay. <laughs> that was just the worst. So you're not a fan of Sabretooth. Okay. What about you, Aaron? Anybody particularly please you in terms of the translation from the comics uh, to the to the big screen or vice versa? Anybody disappoint you in particular and like, eh, that's not the look of the outfit or the costume or the uniform that I wanted. Maybe a bit simplistic, but I just I just enjoyed I mean, I really enjoyed Wolverine um, and that being sort of central to the story. I thought it was just generally a highlight. I will say maybe just uh, Storm, even though her character just kind of felt worthless to me in this movie. Uh, I, I kind of like what they. I generally, I mean, I like the look. They didn't have to do much with her. She she kind of matched, I think, well what you would expect. So I, I think they sort of got the look down right, but the character was just kind of window dressing for for lack of a better term. I'll tell you one that I was disappointed in, both from a choice of plot as well as from a choice of wardrobe. Cyclops did not uh, come come off as I wanted to. And I quite like James Marsden for the role, but I did not like his eye apparatus. It did not seem nearly as cool as uh, I imagined it would be. And furthermore, I'm really disappointed that they made Cyclops to be such a... Again, this movie is very partial to Wolverine's character, and so the feud that those two characters have, they've pretty much made it seem like, oh, Wolverine's good guy, and you know Scott or Cyclops is is a bad guy and or like uh not a bad guy but not a villain but like more like uh you know gene doesn't want to be with this guy we can all see that and i think part of the comic book that's interesting is that real struggle that goes between them personally i like cyclops a lot and i hate to see what they've done with this character here i did think though that cyclops kind of came off i you're talking about is like after the eye apparatus like it, he just kind of felt helpless to me at times like you take mm-hmm. that off of him he can't do anything he seemed very helpless in so many certain, you know, so many situations, Toad rips it off his face in the train station. Well, he's just going to shoot shoot a hole in the roof, and he can't do anything else. Like, we don't even see how he gets out of there. 
uh, when they're in the Statue of Liberty. You better close your eyes, take it off. He can't do anything until somebody tells him to open his eyes. So I, it just seems kind of, uh, he seems helpless. Um, and in, I, in the comic books, he is the leader of the X-Men. There's a period of time yeah. where Charles Xavier goes out of the loop and he's not around and Scott holds everybody together. You don't get that off of this character. And this guy's like somebody with that he loses his glasses and he's completely worthless. Um, that's kind of how he's portrayed in this movie now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. They really didn't do any character building for the X-Men themselves. And if you look at, really, Wolverine, most of his character building, they're doing off of uh, genetic testing and supposition. This is not the best movie in terms of character building for really any of them. They, they, They focus on Wolverine and Rogue, but outside of one shot of Rogue, almost killing her first boyfriend and some flashbacks in Wolverine's memory. Like there's really no depth to any one character. Mm, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So one moment of uh, things that do look really good though, this is a lot before CGI. So they're doing a lot of this work through, you know, older techniques. Rebecca Romaine Stamos at the time, her costume work for Mystique looks excellent. And uh, she really suffered for this when it takes seven to 10 hours a day for them to apply the blue makeup and suit on her. She could not have any skin creams or wear other kinds of makeup during the time. And she was often segregated off from the rest of the crew. She'd be in her trailer while they were shooting other stuff. And so she didn't really feel like she was part of the rest of the movie. She said she felt like she made a different movie than everybody else. Uh, In the end, it still looks really good. A lot of work to get her to look like Mystique. There was a note that I read on the special effects, and I just thought it was funny. Um, It said, in the late 1990s, computer-generated imagery was becoming more commonly used. Singer Singer visited the sets of Episode 1 and Titanic to understand practical and digital effects. And I'm just like, wow, that's that's where he had to go to learn. Like, that's where we were in 1999 and 2000. Like, I don't know. I just found that humorous. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And um, I'll be honest with you, the fight scenes on this have not aged well. I do remember the time thinking we were a little, like the fight scenes didn't deliver, but today I, that, that feeling has magnified oh, considerably. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the wire work where the actors are on wires and kind of have this crouching tiger, hidden dragon nature, like floaty yep. nature. As you mentioned before, Tim Burton puts you into another world in Gotham city. It's not, it's not America. It's whatever country, you know, it's, it is America, but it's DC universe America. It's different. It's a fantastic realm. And perhaps this wire work would do well with that. But the problem is this X-Men movie was already grounded. They established that in the beginning with this Holocaust scene. So that, that scene looks really good as you guys mentioned, but man, it's the fight work with Toad and like uh, Mm -hmm. some of the, some of like the people getting thrown through walls. Uh, There are some rough moments technically, in the fights. Yeah, I believe it. I also, I also remember coming out, I remember thinking this, like, at the time the movie came out, like, again, here we go with Wolverine, but thinking, that was, <laughs> I wanted more out of Wolverine, like, this dude's supposed to go just nuts on people, and we didn't get, we didn't get that till the sequel, when he finally started unloading on people more, but. Well, you got three more movies of it. <laughs> right, yeah, so, I mean, it was kind of, at the time, it was dissatisfying, I remember thinking, um, and like you said, then knowing again, looking through the lens of what we know now, like you're like, wow, that's all. Yeah. 
Absolutely. What do you, anybody have any feelings on the soundtrack here? Uh, superhero soundtracks are often an important role to raise the moment and set the theme. It's just part of the uh, feeling. I, again, I, I just idolized this cartoon. And as Brian mentioned earlier, he loves the, uh, the the theme song from the cartoon. I was a little disappointed to see that that, that theme wasn't adapted and modernized and maybe put into an orchestra for this. But uh, what do you think about the score that they did use here? I The only time I remember ever noticing the score was sort of in the fights at the end at Ellis Island. And it it wasn't terrible, but I remember thinking it sounded a little... I don't know, it didn't sound great. It, it is purgatory for me. Like, there's, it's it was there, but it's not memorable. It, it just is okay it existed i i I wanted something more epic personally i i wanted more than this again batman's a high benchmark but uh danny elfman did such a great job with batman it's a big part of the texture and the feel of the movie and uh while some of the locations that they chose to shoot it in this did deliver what i wanted the environments did the music did not give the full epic nature to me so i i was wanting a little bit more again the holocaust scene it was really good in that scene, and uh, so that delivered the music delivered there. But for the rest of the movie, not as much for me. So. But again, like I, I try to keep take this with a grain of salt. We're really brutal on this movies because we are living in a golden age of this type of movie, and even with soundtracks, we're spoiled because, I mean, we get Game of Thrones and. Like just these truly epic songs that go along with epic things, and it was few. Basically, unless Hans, Hans Zimmer did it back in the '90s, you didn't get a ton of that. Like those songs that really stick with you. Like I, I always cite Crimson Tide for having like that song with or the, the the score for that movie was almost as big as the movie was. So it's, I just feel like we're also very spoiled now. A lot of movies are swinging for the fences on these soundtracks. Almost all of the teen dystopian films had phenomenal soundtracks. Like I mentioned Game of Thrones and Westwood with, and I'm probably going to butcher his name, uh, Ramin Dijwadi. I'm not sure how you spell his name or how do you pronounce his name, but he's absolutely fantastic. And then you have things like Baby Driver that, you know, the movie and the soundtrack are, are so intimately interlaced that the movie almost was a soundtrack, just a big music video for it. Uh, or Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, one of the highest grossing soundtracks ever because the soundtrack was interlaced and important in the movie. So uh, I, I try to take all of these aspects into account when I judge this movie because it's like blaming the guy who does the kickoff for the end score of the game. Well, they went to John Williams and they wanted him, but he was busy and couldn't take the job. So they went to the right man. So um, I, I can't help but say John Williams would have helped here. Uh, I, I'm sure he, he might have been busy with Harry Potter. That That comes out very shortly thereafter. So. And Harry Potter's another one. I mean, absolutely fantastic job making that mystical, magical feel. It's time to go in to look for this. Aaron, are there any fun moments, anything off the beaten track, any fun facts you want to share with people? This was, I was, so I was looking on IMDb and just sort of going through the tree and you guys might have seen this, but I'm just wondering, like, could anybody just get on there and make something up and say, yeah, this actually happened because there was no sources on any of that stuff. 
The reason I say that is because this is my favorite piece of trivia that was listed on IMDb. <laughs> and you can edit this out if you need to. <laughs> but it was just simply one sentence that said, Hugh Jackman got his testicles caught in his harness after a six-foot jump off the set Statue of Liberty. And that was all. Oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I mean, like, what? literally terrible. Like, that's, like that sounds oh. like... At least they healed afterwards. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I... I'm I'm laughing more at just the kind of trivia that is just sitting on the internet, and there's no way to prove whether that's real or not. So um, I don't know about that, but for... apparently there's a movie that Andrew uh, Newman, who came on the uh, Coming to America episode, absolutely loved, where Hugh Jackman has testicles on his chin, and uh, he oh yeah yeah he yeah. absolutely relished this as his favorite uh, comedy movie B- moment, movie so. movie forty three yeah, yeah that, so. that that really does happen so. <laughs> So anyways, that's all I got for you on that. That oh. was uh, <laughs> okay. I'm just laughing more at the comment and how there's no way to actually prove that and there was no source and the internet's never know. wrong, there man. There you go. If it's still on the internet, that's it has true. to be true. That's true. So there you go. His, his testicles got caught. There you go. Uh, most of these things come from <laughs> Blu-ray and DVD uh, features as well. Um, Brian, what about you? Look for this. I just want to toss out there that on Aaron's uh, comment, uh, 384 of 395 people on the internet found that interesting. <laughs> so <laughs> 11 people apparently were not amused. <laughs> a small a small minority were like, that's stupid. <laughs> I don't feel uh, like that that number is representative of people's real interests. I'm just if saying. If I'm going to call BS on one thing, and I, look, I this could be true, but this is where I would call BS. It says on the internet that Patrick Stewart, that neither Patrick Stewart nor Ian McKellen knew how to play chess during the filming of yeah, this movie. I'm pretty sure the British know how to play chess. <laughs> I don't want to make it like a British thing. I'm just saying like, these are two stately gentlemen. If they really yes. didn't play chess, sure. There are people out there that'll shock you that don't know how to ride a bike. I get it. Know how to swim. Totally get it. So maybe it's true, but wow. Every time I play backgammon, I have to learn again. Like I've learned it three separate times, but it's like always from scratch. So uh, if you sat me down to a backgammon table, I wouldn't know how to play. So my look for this moment is going to be James Marsden, despite being uh, six feet tall, still had to wear platform shoes. They wanted him to appear taller than Hugh Jackman, who is six foot two and taller than him. He also wears these platform shoes, and they can clearly be seen as Cyclops scales the wall at Liberty Island. And I actually am questioning if it's Hugh Jackman he needs to look tall next to. Uh, Fopka Jansen, who is his... Um, you know, his girlfriend in this movie, she is listed at six foot tall and she's a very tall lady. My guess is that they wanted him not to appear on eye level with his female love interest. So that's my guess. She's going to come kick my ass for the uh, the old comment. Uh, do you prefer the golden eye Fomka Jansen with the Xenia on a top or do you prefer the Jean Grey Fomka Jansen? Is that even a question? Like, I feel like there's a real clear answer to this one. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go golden eye all day on that. But, uh, on what you were saying about, uh, characters heights, uh, that was a weird, that was an oddity piece for me about this because Wolverine in the comic books is about five, three. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little guy. Like he's a little scrapper, which makes sense. The actual creature, the Wolverine is uh, small and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's feisty. You don't want to, you don't want to tangle with it, but I mean, it's not a bear. 
actually I'll bring this up real quick, uh, just because it's one of my favorite Wolverine moments. And, and one of the, the reasons he really is in, in more endearing in the comic books than anywhere else. Uh, there's a part, uh, in X versus a, it was a series where the X-Men fought the Avengers, uh, over a, uh, new mutant. And, uh, in order to get Wolverine's, uh, Wolverine was actually, batting for the Avengers at this point, he agreed with them, but, uh, this mutant came to him and he was in Antarctica where he had been flung, I believe out of an airplane. And he was, uh, he killed a giant polar bear and he's wearing this giant polar bear around in Antarctica and he finds a beer in the snow. He picks it up and he drinks it. And a little bit later he finds another beer, picks it up and he drinks it. Finally, he gets to one of the, uh, the X jets, and Hope, who is this mutant that the Avengers are trying to kill, uh, is sitting there with a beer in her hand. And she's like, we need to talk. And he takes the beer from her and he goes, you have until I finish this beer. Nice. I like that. And it just, yeah. And it just, it's like, I love his character. Like his character is just fun. You know what time it is, Aaron? It's time for some superlatives. You ready, man? Yeah. Who is your MVP of X-Men? definitely Hugh Jackman. All right. I like it. Uh, so I might have seen that one coming. Uh, Brian, who is your MVP? <laughs> uh, I'm I'm pretty settled on Patrick Stewart. I'm, I'm actually going to go with Brian. As mentioned before, I'm not, I'm not the biggest Wolverine guy, so I'm going to go with Patrick Stewart as well. Tra- uh, Professor Xavier is one of my favorite X-Men. Best supporting actor, Aaron? Probably Ian McKellen. Those are my top two, I think, in this. I like it. Ian film. McKellen's my best supporting actor, too. What about you, Brian? Uh, then it's all three of us. Um, his dialogue, which you know, we just discussed how you can sit there and just listen to the two of them go back and forth for much, much longer. The dialogue between the two of them is just fantastic. So who is your hidden gem? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't really have a good answer here. So um, I'm just, for whatever reason, I thought of when Toad's jumping on those uh, security guards, the guy that's off <laughs> camera that goes, Ugh! That's my hidden gem. Okay. <laughs> okay. Deep cut. I like it. In fact, I love it. Brian, who's your hidden gem? Uh, Anna Paquin. Um, this was a big kind of coming out party for her. Uh, she did a lot of great stuff after this. Um, I was a huge fan of True Blood. I just, you know, I didn't know who she was when this movie came out. And she thoroughly impressed me in this movie and then going forward. Hmm. Interesting. More on that later as well. As for me on the on the hidden gem, I'm going to go with Bruce Davidson, who plays Senator Kelly. He's pretty despicable, and I like what he did as the guy who's leading off the charge of the Mutant Registration Act. I, I thought he was a great villain, and I think he leaves the movie too soon. It's unfortunate. If you were to recast somebody, Aaron, who would you recast and who would you put in their place? I think that outside of Professor X, Magneto, and Wolverine, like, I nothing would have... I'm not married to anybody else in this movie um so change them all and i wouldn't have felt strongly about it one way or the other i don't think that uh, anybody else really hit me in a certain way so uh replace everybody mix them up i don't i don't care well we're about to do that probably because disney now owns the rights to this and uh we're probably gonna get a total reloaded uh recasted line and i'm gonna be sad to see mcavoy and fassbender go uh, I agree on that, um, that they are definitely worth uh, keeping. I also like the young woman who's playing Storm right now. That's I feel like that was a solid casting. I really liked them going back to her grungy uh, original look with the whole mohawk thing. Um, that was that was a, a really solid bit of work they did there. 
Uh, what about you, Brian? Who's your recast? I, I'm actually with Aaron on this. You could really do pretty much anything you wanted to. But I'm actually going to take it to the two people I like the best in this movie just because I read something interesting about this. And it was a recasting of Liam Neeson as Professor X and Jeremy Irons as Magneto. You know what? I love I love the guys who did it. But I have to say, if these guys didn't do it, those guys would be good. So those are good. Those are, those are interesting, if nothing else, for sure. Yeah, I just yeah. thought it was different. It was kind of thinking outside the box. I could totally see Jeremy Irons as a Magneto character. That would be really cool. However, if you flip the script on it and flip those two guys, I could see both of them doing honest justice to the other character. So uh, it, it was like I said, it was an interesting article I was reading about that. As with everything else in this movie, this cast is something that's very lopsided. I've never seen a movie that gets it so right and so very wrong at the same time. Uh, I really <laughs> love Patrick Stewart, and I really love Ian McKellen. And uh, I, I mean, Hugh Jackman is great as Wolverine. Uh, and I think James Morrison was awesome. But I had a hard time narrowing it down here because Sabretooth is truly terrible, and Storm was awful as Halle Berry. And, uh, I, but I, I think uh, also the guy who plays Iceman, Bobby Drake, that's not what I want from that character either. Uh, small role. Yeah, but. he's supposed to be he's supposed to be wisecracking, and actually, um, in the current uh, comic books, he's also a homosexual character. So they, it wasn't true of it at the time, but if they really recast it to do honor to the comic books right now, um, they got to change that up a little bit. Yeah, and so uh, that that becomes a bigger problem later in the other subsequent movies. So I'm gonna let Bobby Drake off in this movie. And by far to me, who was the worst in this movie was Anna Paquin. Ooh. I thought that she was, wow. I've not, uh, unlike Brian, I've never liked her in anything she's done. I have not seen the piano where she gets her Academy uh, Award. She doesn't look like the character Rogue, and her acting is really rough at times. The Southern accent is not at all Southern. It, it, it just feels like a British person trying to do a Southern accent. Uh, we're talking like Daniel Craig and Tomb Raider bad uh, performance of an american and so um i thought I, I thought we needed a character that looks like rogue from the comics as well as is a much better actress and i'm going to suggest bryce dallas howard for the part she's only one year older than anna paquin and she would have been the right age and she's just a much better actress this would have been pre-village if just just a little bit before the village if you want to have a rough idea for where in her career this would have hit so it's funny that you bring up her accent because she legit goes on to do 81 episodes of a TV show in True Blood that takes place in Louisiana where she has a southern accent. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, there's even an Internet uh, YouTube series that says, uh, you know, five, everything wrong with X-Men in five minutes. One of the good lines on this was uh, the people who actually made True Blood said, yeah, that's the southern accent we want. Um, <laughs> mockingly. Um, so anyway, uh, sorry about that. I know that was your head and gym. And so I, 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 we're, we're, we're battling there, but, uh, what is your best shot of the movie, Aaron? Uh, I'm going back to Wolverine in the bar when he's first, his, his, uh, claws come out. And I don't, I don't know if you guys are like me, but when I was a kid watching the cartoon, I always wondered, like, could he ever control did the claws always come out together at the same time or could he, I was always like, this would be so cool if he could like control certain ones at a time. And I never remembered seeing that in the cartoon. And so when that middle claw came out slowly at the guy's throat, I was just like, finally, somebody gets it. <laughs> An answer. 
Yes. <laughs> and Actually, so, I love I love it when he flips off Cyclops after he sets off the yeah. metal detector. Yeah, like, that also, was that was my yeah. favorite claw. Yeah. So I, I I think that well let me so that and I said this earlier but like when he like is standing there with his claws at two different people um, I think that shot is just is too cool. It is a good one. What about you, Brian? Best shot. I'm going to go with the concentration camp in the beginning. That scene has a few real moments of import. Favorite shot. I'm going to go back to the uh, the concentration camp shot at the very beginning of the movie. Like earlier, this movie is pretty bereft of, uh, of uh, character building. And that's just, it's such a moving scene to show you why Ian McKellen feels the way he does. He's really down on humanity because he lived through one of the darkest things that humans could you know people showing the the man's inhumanity to man and why ian mckellen is is this bitter warrior my favorite shot of the movie is when mystique <laughs> makes a roundhouse kick and she morphs from being wolverine back into being mystique and the same air uh, aerial kick i really like that that was a cool moment that they put in the trailer and uh it was uh it was my favorite shot of the movie so Aaron, what was your favorite scene? Um, well, as far as scene goes, I think um, since we're showing love to the, the opening concentration camp scene, I, I would agree with that. Um, we haven't talked about the, the outside of the train station one um, after they kidnap Rogue. And uh, I think that was I, I, when some of the, the powers, the mutations are featured. Um, and so when Magneto is just without any effort at all. He's just snatched, you know, throwing cars in the air, uh, snatching guns out of the policeman's hands and turning it around on them. Like, I think that scene was pretty cool. And just to see the interaction between him and Professor Xavier, even though they're nowhere near each other, I thought that whole scene was just, was just cool. It was a good way to sort of feature how these guys can interact with not just each other, but other people. No, it's a great choice. Brian, what was your favorite scene in the movie? I'm going to go with the chess game between Professor X and Magneto yes. at the very end. So I've talked about the very first shot of the movie and now the the end of the movie. So I just I thought that was a fantastic wrap-up scene. That's a great one. Um, for me, I'm going to go with the Holocaust scene that was your favorite shot. Uh, I just thought all of this was really amazing. It was emotionally poignant. Uh, it was character-driven, all the things that you said, and that's what made it my favorite scene of the movie. It peaks early. If you had to change one thing, if you're Brian Singer, what would you do? Well, not okay. Bad way of putting that. Uh, if you're uh, if you're the director of this movie, Aaron, what one thing do you change? So this is a a problem that I guess I have with movies in general, and I understand why it's done. Um, and especially with the X Men here, the the love triangle between Cyclops and Wolverine and Jean Grey is it was always kind of an important part of the cartoon. I imagine the comics as well. But Wolverine's known this girl for two days. And he's coming out of a coma, and he's saying, you can tell her my heart belongs to somebody else. You just met this woman. Like, just, there was no reason to put that in there. Um, I, I think some of these things, even though I know that's a part of the mythology, it was unnecessary in this movie. It was contrived, and it was forced. And it was just, you didn't need to, that's an important part, and I'm sure a lot of fans are, would be looking forward to that. But it just, for a movie that was trying to be a bit more realistic, like, it, it doesn't happen that way. Um, yeah. So that, that gets under my skin, and that's generally the case with a lot of movies, um, but especially this one. 
Like, it just, they were trying to force it, and it just came across as stupid to me. I think that this movie feels rushed in many ways, and what you're saying is a prime example of that. That's a very astute observation, and it would be a very beneficial change. What about you, Brian? Change one thing. More X-Men. Who do you most want? Who do you most want to see in here? I'm a big Gambit fan. I really do like Gambit. Yeah. I would say either him. Uh, I got Nightcrawler in the sequel. If you bring Gambit in, you can actually do Rogue's real story, where like they kind of cross paths early on, and they're they're like they're they're working with Doctor Sinister, and they actually are bad guys, but then they reclaim their image and they get on the right path through Charles Xavier, and that's a far more interesting story than the Rogue that we got. Yeah, you really do. You get more characters as the movies go on. So I, you know, a lot of the guys that I like, or guys and girls that I like, I'm a big Psylocke fan too. I was happy she finally got some screen time. I would say my first is probably Gambit. Yeah, that's that's high up there for me as well. If I had to change one thing, and if you haven't guessed already, there are many things I would change. Um, <laughs> I would say slow down. That's a general comment, and that goes along with what Aaron was saying. Magneto does not have to be the bad guy the first movie. You can set up his character and his relationship with Charles, and you can watch the friendship that they have disintegrate over this fundamental T in the road that they hit. That would be an interesting emotional conflict to have them go through. Senator Kelly is a good enough villain to have this be a political message, it would be neat to have Charles have an issue with how the school's being run and have the government try and shut that down. It would be neat to see the X-Men bring Wolverine in and to tell the backstories of these characters. Uh, sometimes just simply ending the movie with saying, like, we're a team and we're going to have to be united at the end of this thing, while Magneto says the Brotherhood is going to form separately, and that's where you cut off the first movie. That, to me, is how I would rather do this. And the only way you're going to do that is to have the faith that you're going to have a second, third, fourth, maybe even a fifth movie and to know it right off the bat. And maybe they didn't have that luxury. But I think if you're going to make an X-Men movie, you have to put faith in it. I thought that even at the time. And that's not that that is that is not me saying that now after the MCU came out. I felt that way even in 10th grade. Just everything you just said is why Batman versus Superman will go down as probably the worst superhero movie ever made. Catwoman. Oh, yeah, there is Catwoman. Yeah, there, there, there is Catwoman. Wow, you just got defeated there, Brian. That was awesome. That's, yeah, that's You that's just went good, slinking away after point. all he said was Catwoman, and you were uh, Yeah. <laughs> awesome. that even count? Does it count as a superhero? <laughs> Are we counting Catwoman? Uh, God, it's even worse because it's Halle Berry. The movie that made us think maybe we should take Halle Berry's Oscar away. <laughs> <laughs> the academy yeah, called and said no <laughs> you, you got to give that back <laughs> um, uh best quote of the movie aaron I, there were some good one-liners i they uh, i i said it earlier uh what do they call you wheels i thought that was good um mm -hmm. apparently somewhat ad-libbed yeah so yeah uh, i'll stick with that there were a couple others but that was that was a good one what about you brian when hugh jackman goes wait it's me how do we know? You're a dick. That's All a right. good one. Right. That's a good one. I'm surprised nobody picked what happens when a toad gets hit by lightning. The same thing <laughs> as everything else. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so bad. Oh, man. And actually, I oh, I came very close. I wanted to pick Callie Berry for my recast. I, I thought when I saw Angela Bassett could have played this, and for those of you who don't know who Angela Bassett is, that's uh, T'Challa's uh, mother in Black Panther. She's got presence... She's got this commanding uh, nature about her. 
Uh, Halle Berry does such a bad job with her accent in this as well. Uh, they, they, she did such a bad job with her accent in the other movies. After this, they told her just, just go with the American accent. Don't just drop it. Don't even try anymore. Again, Aaron, I'm excited for you uh, to watch the newer X Men trilogy so far mm-hmm. because the girl they got to play Storm is just fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Right. Again, no disrespect to Halle Berry. This just wasn't. A little right bit of disrespect to Halle Berry here. I don't think. I think she's. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Catwoman. <laughs> so, uh, and hey, I'm just saying, die another day happened as well. I'm just, I'm, I'm really questioning this best actress, uh, Oscar-winning Halle Berry nature. So, um, anyway, best quote of the movie. Oh, you from... didn't like Swordfish either, did you? No, I did not. I mean, uh, oh, wow. she, she was eye candy Real. in that movie. I don't even think. No, that, that. Oh no, man, that's. Uh, I don't know. I. I really, I, I enjoyed that movie. Also with Hugh Jackman. Also that. true. It's true. So anyway, my best quote of the movie is going to be, Magneto says, you know this plastic prison of theirs won't hold me forever. The war is still coming, Charles, and I intend to fight it by any means necessary. Professor X responds, and I will always be there, old friend. Before we get out of here, uh, Aaron, do you want to plug anything? Any, uh, maybe tell people about uh, where you work? Yeah, I work at a, a historic site called Shaker Village of Pleasant Hill. It's uh, We have over 30 original uh, 19th century structures that stand uh, from a communal society, communal religious society that was uh, there from 1805 to 1923. We've got great programming, great exhibits, great, uh, great history, great story to tell. Uh, we have riverboat ride on the Kentucky River. We have farm and garden. We have dining, lodging. Uh, we have a nature preserve with nearly 40 miles of trails. So there's a little bit of everything for everybody. So uh, come to Central Kentucky and, and visit us. Kentucky so much more than basketball and horses. And and bourbon, which is the three Bs that they're throwing at you these days. Uh, got a lot more than that. Time to come full circle, the moment of truth on a five-star scale. Aaron, why don't you go first? What do you give X-Men from 2000? Uh, I went three and a half, so it was, it was, it was good. It wasn't bad, uh, but not great. Brian, what do you rate X-Men? I'm going to give X-Men a four, uh, just a, a solid four. Again, X-Men is my favorite comic book uh group um i give it a four because i'm i'm a very strong believer in what this movie did for comic book fans who wanted movies and i give it maybe more credit than it deserves on on really kicking it off but um basically i saw this movie and then i got to enjoy the last 20 years of comic book film and that's a that's a good outlook on it. I, I I'm probably being a little harsh on it, but uh, I'm gonna give this one a two point five. I there there are things I love about this movie, but the the problems are many, and like I said, the fundamental concept and the approach to it was a hard thing for me to overcome. Again, Halle Berry and a Paquin don't help matters. You know, I think I, I I don't take this as an excuse when I think uh, Tim Burton showed us how to make a really good superhero movie before this. And the Rocketeer was such a good superhero movie before this and uh, Superman. And I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't put all the credit on this one for kicking everything off. So. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Back to that. Um, so, yeah. But anyway, I, I have a top 50 superheroes movie uh, countdown and X-Men, X-Men 2000 is just sitting on the outside of that in the honorable mention category. So it did not make wow. my top 50. It's a genre I love. Well, Brian, it's time to pick a movie for next week. You ready? I'm excited already. I like it. Uh, 
So we're going to do some cult classics. A cult classic is a movie that may not have necessarily taken the world by storm initially, but grows to have a very dedicated following over time. So some cult classics that I'm going to throw your way. Option number one, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, 1975. A newly engaged couple have a breakdown in an isolated area and must pay a call to the bizarre residence of Dr. Frankenfurter. Option two, Death Becomes Her, from 1992. When a woman learns of an immortality treatment, she sees it as a way to outdo her longtime rival. Option three, Pink Flamingos, 1972. The notorious Baltimore criminal and underground figure Divine goes up against a sleazy married couple who make a passionate attempt to humiliate her and sees her tabloid-given title as the filthiest person alive. Oh gosh, I've that's I've never I've never seen that one, so I I'm I'm tempted, but I tell you, I I very very vaguely remember uh, Death Becomes Her being really good. So I think I'm going to go with Death Becomes Her. I, I'm I'm excited to give that one a rewatch. It has definitely been like over 20 years. I have never seen it myself, and the title intrigues me. So I'm in. Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn, and Bruce Willis. Well, it's, it's Bruce, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much for joining us and talking about X-Men. We really enjoyed having you on here. It's great to see you again. It's been too long. So I hope you had fun. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, I had a good time. It was good talking to you guys. And Brian, thank you as always. Always a pleasure. Yes, and thank all the listeners uh, for listening. Uh, to all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. That feedback is not only helpful to the show, but it helps others find the show and helps us build our brand and share our movie-loving community with the world. So also give us a like on Facebook. We definitely want to see from you. Every week we're going to post comments on the movies, and we want to hear back from you. Argue with us. Tell us why we're wrong. Tell me why I'm... Tell me why Anna Paquin's awesome. And uh, email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com if you have any ideas for the show or want to go into extended dialogue, if you want to be on the show. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? Wise men say forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza.